your Bibles to Paul's letter to the Titus as we read the Word of God together. Paul's letter to Titus chapter 1. If you've got your blue pew Bible, even if you didn't bring a Bible and you don't own a phone, you can look in the blue pew Bible, page 998, and you'll find it there. And it's great if you can follow along with the Word of God. You'll have greater understanding with what's going on here. I'm going to pick up in verse 9 of Titus chapter 1 and read through the end of the chapter. And this is, friends, this is the very Word of God. Titus 1.9 He must hold firm to the trustworthy Word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. May God add His blessing. To the reading of his word, would you pray with me now? Holy, awesome God, we look to you now as we have been worshiping you, seeking to worship you in spirit and in truth. Triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we aspire to honor you both in the preaching and in the listening to the preaching. We want to heed your word. Holy Father, I pray by your adopting care and love that you would lead us even to Jesus Christ, your own Son, by the power of your Spirit. We pray that as your word goes forth here, that you would wound and heal us, that you would empower us to be those who bear witness to the gospel in a crooked and perverse generation. We pray for this land of Canada, Even as we've just celebrated Canada Day, we recognize it is still your dominion, that you rule and reign even over this land, and there is nothing that happens that escapes your eye. And so, Lord, we do pray that wickedness would be thwarted and that the gospel would spread and hearts would be turned even towards your loving grace even from, as we heard from Psalm 23, even the grace of the great shepherd. Father, we thank you for all those gospel-preaching churches in this city this morning. 
We pray that they would let the word fly and that the word of God would convert, transforming people, that there would be many people saved in Calgary this morning, that they would be saved from the wrath to come, that they would be saved to newness of life, that they would be saved to enjoy the sweetness even of the goodness of God in the land of the living. Lord, we do look with eternity in our eye. There are many people here this morning who are, as Isaiah spoke of, they are the the bruised reed. They're the smoldering wick. And you're here this morning feeling like the, the fire has almost gone out. Oh Lord, I pray that you would minister to them and even as we just sang, that you would put strength in every stride. We know your Spirit can do that. We ask that you would do that by your Word. And we pray for all the principalities and powers, all of the authorities, all of the ruling governments, and all the different levels of authority that we may have to live with and live under, Lord. We pray that there would be a great turning to you in righteousness, and that your Word would convict It would wound and heal even those who currently do not believe in you. We do pray for Prime Minister Trudeau this morning. We pray for Premier Kenny, for Mayor Gondek. We pray that they would all turn from their sins and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and so be saved. That is our chief concern for them. Lord, guide us even as we hear your word. Give us discernment. Give us wisdom. And help us then to heed you with care and attention that we would glorify your name for we receive your word even from your own lips, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to take your seats. Well, I've already heard that People are getting ready now that it's July. People are ready to go camping. I've heard lots of folks already talking about their camping plans. You know, that, get those, all that summer hiking in out in the mountains. And that means, of course, that now when you drive into the mountains, you're going to see those people who have parked very poorly on the side of the road as they try to take pictures of the wildlife. You know the ones, they slam on the brakes right in front of you when you're driving because they see some animal in the ditch. They'll get out of their car even. That's even the crazier thing. They'll get out of their car and think that they can walk up to that deer or that elk. Forbid it if they walk up to a moose. And, And you look at them and you think, what are you doing trying to get so close to a wild animal? And of course, then you're thinking about going on your hikes, going out with your family. And you might not think bear spray is very important until you see a bear. Oh, I forgot to pack the bear spray. You might not even think that shooting a beautiful bear is right or good. But if the bear attacked one of your children, you'd be wishing you had a rifle to shoot the bear rather than let it kill your child. See, I just took it to a real dark turn there, didn't I? Everybody's having fun, thinking about camping. And I'm always thinking, yeah, 
Well, what about the bear? But the motivation, the motivation, the idea that you would rather protect your child than preserve the life of the beautiful bear when it's going to attack your child, that motivation is actually the answer to the question posed by Titus chapter 1. And it's the question, why does the church need qualified leadership? Now, if you were here last time, you'll know, and in view of my analogy, that the fact is you need qualified leadership in the church because there are wild animals out there. There's wild animals out there. The church, as a voluntary society, has many kinds of people trying to get into it, and even some who, once they're inside this society... They might want to leave it or alter it or even destroy it, to devour it even. And so, previously, in the first nine verses, and I just read from verse 9, we looked at the whole section in the previous sermon, but previous we saw that there was a charge to these leaders. They had to be qualified Because then, in what we'll look at this morning, they had to be qualified because they've got a job to do. It's interesting, it is a shepherding job. And as Gavin led us in Psalm 23, we see that the the Lord is our shepherd. So it makes sense then, then when he puts in leaders in the church, that they then are going to take on that similar role as under-shepherds. Of course, a shepherding job, it involves care, it involves feeding the lambs, takes a lot of wisdom, help the, helping the sheep sometimes to heal up, and certainly causing them to grow. But a key factor that we saw when we looked at those qualifications, the key factor was the ability to teach sound doctrine. He's got to be able to teach sound doctrine. He has to hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. He has to be able to do that. And why? Why does he have to have that ability to teach? When would it be so critical? Well, That ability to teach is needed when things are most urgent. It's most useful when danger is near. You don't need the bear spray sitting in your garage when it's sitting in your garage and you're not out hiking amongst the bears. But you need it. Like you'll be glad it's in your backpack when you're out there. And oh, there the bear shows up. You need it in the urgency of danger, when danger is near. And in the, in the case of the church, there is the threat of spiritual danger, of theological danger. And so we can, we can kind of forget, just like, just like we, we, you, you might shudder at the thought of shooting the beautiful bear, you know, we, we might kind of recoil a little bit at the idea that pastors have to protect the flock from false ideas, false movements, false theologies, and the false teachers who spread them. 
Remember, just as we read, even as Gavin read from Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. His rod and his staff comfort me. I'm glad he's got him, both to correct me, but also to protect me. And so for under-shepherds in the church, this is hard work. And it's hard because these kinds of protective measures are not primarily directed toward the outsider, but to those inside the church. You know, people without Christ will obviously speak falsely because they're blinded by their sin. But the shepherd must protect against the proverbial wolves in sheep's clothing. And you've heard that phrase, a wolf in sheep's clothing. Well, who said it first? Jesus did. Jesus warned about it. Even in Matthew 7, the famous Sermon on the Mount, he said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. So the greater threat is from inside the church. When Paul delegated the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, he said that there would be these wolves that would come out out from among you. The issue is from inside the church. Inside churches is where the greatest threats to the gospel exist. That's where they are. The greatest threat is not from the government. It's not from corporations. It's not from the global surveillance state, as bad as any of those can be. Interesting, God has a way of causing these sophisticated empires to collapse very quickly in unexpected ways for inexplicable reasons. So just kind of keep your eye out for that. But for us, We can't allow ourselves to get caught up only in what's going on out in society. You have an eye on it, but not only on that. We must be diligent to think about what is happening in the churches. The church is the hope of the world. And if the church is rotten, then the hope for the world is lost. And that is what Paul was overwhelmingly concerned about as he sent Titus, his delegate, to this island of Crete. For all of the corruption in society, and in particular the corruption of Crete society, it was known for its corruption, for all of that corruption, it was the church in Crete. That is what troubled Paul. That's what he was concerned about. So Titus was being sent to Crete, and his primary task was to do a sort of a spiritual surgery. He would have to cut sharply and remove swiftly the internal cancers that had spread in the Christian communities in Crete. And this type of surgery, for the sake of church health, is not what most people think that pastors are to do. People get worried when pastors rebuke sharply. Right? Get a little suspicious. Pastors rebuking sharply. People are concerned that pastors aren't giving other perspectives a voice in the church. 
And so what happens then is pastors can ignore what Titus 1 says and they can put the scalpel down and they can let the patient die on the table. And that's what's happening, actually. It's happening when, they, when the statistics talk about decline of Christianity and decline of churches. You're just seeing these churches die on the table because the pastors have refused to do spiritual surgery now for years and decades and for a century. But of course, doing that would be pastoral malpractice. Paul will not let Titus forsake his calling in this matter. And so, he has to address first this Cretan crisis. Verses 10 through 14. And then in, in the rest, he's going to help Titus to understand the characteristics of false teachers. And so that's how we're going to go along. First, this Cretan crisis is what we're going to see. Now, in Crete, so you, you know, we're going back in history. In Crete, just like at any time, all churches have problems, right? This church has problems. Surprise, surprise. And you're like, yeah, I know this church has problems. Um, you're, just not, you're just not saying it to my face, that's all. No, just kidding. I don't think it's that bad. But anyways, all churches have problems, but not all problems are in all churches, you know, each, each church has its own stuff. But in Crete, the problems were people problems. And Paul describes the people problems with this, this list. Basically, he says, verse 10, There are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. So, They're insubordinate, that's the first thing. They're empty talkers, they're deceivers, and then they have a certain theological view. They're from this group, this so-called circumcision party. Now, I know about you, but when I hear this, if if I put my modern ears on, and I I hear this term insubordinate, doesn't it sound then like Paul is domineering? Isn't, isn't Paul then being oppressive? Isn't he trying to put people under his boot heel by accusing them of being insubordinate? At least that's how it sounds to me if I kind of think the way we think. So you hear, hear a word like insubordinate and it confronts our egalitarian age. It does, that we don't like authority. We don't like any authority except for the authority of our own inner selves. So... I think it's important at this point, as you hear that word, insubordinate, just to ask yourselves if it is even possible to label someone as insubordinate today. Like if I, if I make that declaration at the meeting, say, at the Gospel Partners meeting after the service, if I say, well, so-and-so is being insubordinate, would you then be coming at me with an email or something? Uh, or worse. If you're confident that this label can be applied, then you'll be able to listen and hear what the inspired Word of God says. Paul says, verse 10, For there are many who are insubordinate. 
Now, Paul is making it clear that these are not just those folks who are maybe hard-hearted, but they say the right things. He's not talking about those who are simply mistaken, those who are confused, maybe those who haven't had a chance to be taught differently. He is talking about people that are giving pushback. They're not just giving constructive critique. They're pushing back with a specific agenda of their own. That is the emphasis. It is not then your run-of-the-mill disagreement. This is someone who has a specific plan and an agenda, and he is trying to advance that agenda against the authority. And so, we know then, if there's an agenda, what's the agenda? Where's it coming from? It's the agenda of the quote-unquote circumcision party. Now, this was just Paul's label for Jews in the churches of Jesus Christ who demanded that Gentiles had to still keep the Jewish food laws even if they said they believed that Jesus was the Messiah. So in other words, Gentiles who were believing in Jesus were going to be confronted by these, these, these Jews who said, okay, you've got Jesus, but you still have to become Jewish. And these insubordinate folks were attempting to Judaize the churches. So this so-called circumcision party was first confronted by Paul in Galatians when he had to get in the face of Peter, even the apostle Peter who was getting confused about this. And in Galatians 2.14 says, When I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews. And that last phrase, to live like Jews in the Greek, is to Judaize. To Judaize them. And that's why then these, this group is, has been called since that time the Judaizers. Not just Jews, but Jews are saying, yeah, okay, you can have Jesus, but you must keep the Old Testament laws, all the food laws, all the festivals. All the guys got to get circumcised. It's always difficult to talk about. Anyways, I'll pass on. Um, now, how is this insupport, insubordinate? How is it insubordinate? Like, why is... You know, you got to ask yourself, kinda, again, with your modern ears, how is it insubordinate? Aren't, aren't these folks simply wanting to get the church back on track with God's law? Isn't that what the Judaizers were doing? When they're just saying, hey, Gentiles, okay, you got Jesus, but let's really get back to God's law. Sounds plausible. God's the ruler of all kings. God's law governs theocratically over all society. And the laws about ceremonies and foods to eat and festivals and calendar dates, they're to be observed so that there's a clear distinction between the clean and the unclean between God's people and outsiders, actually it sounds a little bit compelling maybe. Why is that insubordinate? Why is this, the Greek word, an hupokratos, not submitting under the authority? Well, it's, it's insubordinate because it refuses to submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ. It refuses to submit to Christ's own 
apostles' teaching. It refuses to submit to the new covenant word of God and to the church of Jesus Christ that is ordered by that word. It's wanting to do its own thing. Now, as is so often the case, the problem is not merely that these folks have a difference of interpretation, but what they're doing with their agenda is aiming to wear down God's legitimate leadership by this constant stream of word wrangling. Just constantly. They're empty talkers, or the other translations speak of vain talkers. The Greek has the idea of being purposeless, pointless talkers. And what that means is that their intention is just to grind you down. They just want to grind you down, just wear you out. Have you met anybody like that? You know, you talk to them, and you're trying to have a conversation, and they're just, they're just trying to wear you down, just grind you down. It's certainly, if any of you have had any exposure to a cult's teaching, you'll know that that's a tactic. It's actually a, a strategy. Grind people down with a barrage of attacks, even if the attacks aren't coherent. They don't have to be. You know, and so you might respond to, to the cult person and you respond logically to one argument and what do they do? They jump to another argument as if the first argument didn't exist, even though you proved it wrong. They act as if it doesn't matter and they move on to the next one because the point is they just want to keep grinding you down. It is empty talk. It's not meant to have substance, it's meant to wear you out. And because then it's exhausting, then you are then more vulnerable to receive the false teaching. And that's the point as well. They're deceivers. They're not speaking in good faith, as we would call it. They're trying to use whatever tricks they can come up with to unsettle the leadership. They're trying to position themselves in places of influence and win followers to themselves by hook or by crook. They're not concerned with integrity. They're concerned with getting that influence and power. Now, the Pope is scheduled to visit Alberta. You've probably seen in the news and we'll see how that goes. I was reading a commentary on his recent papal announcement. Uh, I don't actually think it's available. The, the announcement actually isn't available in English. I think it's in Italian, so it, this is translated, what I was reading, the guy's comment on it. But his new papal announcement is all about evangelism. It's all about evangelism, and he uses that term, evangelism. And you might be th- sitting there thinking, hmm, oh, wow. The Pope is talking about sharing the gospel. Hmm, things are looking up. It's a move in the right direction. You know, I want to think positively about the Pope. Oh, maybe, maybe he is wanting to share the gospel. But the author that I was reading, I've referred to him before, Leonardo di Caricchio, great Italian name, church planting in Rome. But he, he, made, he made the comment, he just noted that the Pope's use of the term evangelism and Protestant usage of the same term are completely different. So same word, completely different meanings. For the Pope, 
Evangelism is making people nominally connected to the institution of the Roman Catholic Church. That's all it is. Whereas for Protestants, drawing from the inspired scriptures, we know that evangelism is the announcing of the person and work of Jesus Christ. We announce that to sinners who currently reside under God's eternal wrath. And we do it with the aim that those people would turn from their sins and they would believe on Jesus Christ and trust His merits and trust them alone so that they could have needed deliverance from hell which they are destined for without such repentance. That's what we talk about when we're talking about evangelism. And that's why all Protestants have historically understood the Pope to be a false prophet. He's a false prophet. And this kind of practice of using biblical words and giving them different meanings than what the Bible and the original authors intended, that that practice has been common, common throughout the history of of the church of Rome, and I use the term church very loosely. And the result, it deceives people because they think they see the word in the Bible and they think the Pope's saying the same thing, but he's not. And you don't know until you get deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper deeper into it. And you realize, oh no, he's talking about something completely different. But by that point, you are subsumed into this entire world of deception. This is also why the threat of deception and, and this empty talk and these agendas, this is why even sometimes in democratic government in churches, the way churches will vote on things, sometimes it doesn't function correctly. And you can have an influential empty talker and they can gain power and influence even through deception, and then they can spread their insubordination to others. I mean, sadly, just this building we're sitting in, I think I, I'm not afraid to say, I've said it before, but the last, the last pastor in this building, in the Lutheran church here, that person, uh, she was, I think, a false teacher. Because she taught a false gospel, and it was damning to her hearers. Now, tried to give undeserved favor and grace to her, and but I, it, it just—it was a tragedy that many of those folks. I hope I hope that some of the folks who were here were actually true believers. But the thought that they had to sit under this false teaching, and in my view. It could have been some other church, maybe not ours, but in my view, it is part of the Lord's temporal judgment on that church to remove its lampstand and to close that church down so it didn't keep spreading this false teaching. And praise the Lord, I think all of you are here wanting to hear from God's Word, and that's just a delight, and it's just, just a, it just shows you've got to have hope that the Lord can you know, bring, bring new things even when things are bad. Now, for our church, we need to pay attention 
to the way that Paul addressed the circumcision party. So, for example, when he wrote to the church at Rome, he said the Jews who had the Bible, who claimed to be the upholders of God's theocracy, they had all that, but despite that, they became insubordinate. You know the verse, Romans 10.1, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, that is, the Jews, is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they do not submit to God's righteousness. Bible people, if we want to call them that. And yet they're refusing to submit to God's righteousness. They wanted to set up their own. They're insubordinate. They're unsubmissive. And yet they appear to be zealous. And this shows that for Paul to Titus and for us today, that there are internal threats to the church that come from more places than just loose living or, you know, antinomianism. There's more threats than just sexual immorality in the church. There are also threats from zealous, insubordinate, false teaching about righteousness, about what constitutes what is right. And so Paul said then in Romans 10:4, most important clarification, he says, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Such a precious verse. So I hope that we're all put on our guard at this point. I think we must. Because although we will automatically think of the obvious false teachers that are on TV, the health and wealth preachers, and if you're not, you don't know that those guys on TV are all false, I'm just telling you they are, just to be clear on that. But we also have to be aware of the false teachers which Paul is dealing with, specifically the Judaizers. And so this isn't just a case of sort of punching right. It's, it's a case of being keenly aware of the deceiving features of intense religion. You can be intense about stuff, but you can end up opposing our own dear Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So this is something to watch. Now, with the appointment of the elders in the churches throughout Crete, Paul shows his strategy for dealing with false teachers. What's his strategy? How, how are you going to deal with false teachers? Well, one of the things he's going to do is he wants to have multiplied good teachers. John Stott said, When false teachers increase, the the most appropriate long-term strategy is to multiply the number of true teachers who are equipped to rebut and refute error. We need to be convinced that this is possible. So that actually is his strategy long-term And that's why he tells Titus to appoint elders in every town as I directed you, he said back in verse 5. Now, just ask yourself, like, think of it. How how big of a priority is it in your life to support the multiplication of true teachers, good teachers, knowing that these false teachers spread, spread like weeds? It's just something to have in mind, even as our own church. Just think about ways that we can see raised up more true teachers. It's not that, oh, well, we, yeah, there's some good preachers around. Well, praise God there is. But we need more of them. We need lots of them. 
We need herds of good teachers. All kinds. We need just to be buried in good teachers. Because right now, we're buried in false teaching at every, every turn. Now, in the short, the short phase and stage that Paul addresses with Titus, there's two sharp actions that he says must be taken with the false teachers. Maybe the long-term strategy, raise up good teachers. But the short-term strategy is two things. They must be silenced and rebuked. They must be silenced and rebuked. Look at verse 11. I'm into my second point. They must be silenced. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Now, this is the pastoral burden that's coming through. Paul's pastoral burden. And, and, but you've got to think, why does he give Titus the go-ahead to essentially cancel these teachers? Right? To put it in our own language. He's saying, go ahead and cancel these teachers. How is that possible? Is this an example of evil St. Paul and his kind of handmaid's tale nightmare that you've been told about? My sons were asking me about who Margaret Atwood was. You know, well, you know, Paul would be the villain of the story, right? And that's how a lot of people outside, they think, oh, this church stuff is all, that's all, it's immoral. So maybe you think, oh yeah, here's cancel culture too. This guy does it as well. But no, the false teachers reflect this, or, or I should say, in the church, Paul thinks that false teachers should be canceled and silent because they are harming whole families. Mums and dads and children. So these teachers, they're not teaching in good faith. They're teaching for shameful gain. They're doing it to gain prestige. They're doing it to gain money or power. And you never want to forget that men will aspire to clout and notoriety even if they aren't really getting rich from it. Although many do. They aspire to get rich and so that's what they do. But the false teachers reflect that stereotypical character of the Cretans generally. Now, you, you, have that, you have that line. He says, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. You know, stereotypes, they don't apply to everyone because you know, even the godly elders that Titus would appoint these and the godly believers from among the Cretans, they would have defied those stereotypes. But of course, and this also comes from Paul. He was that stereotypical zealous Jew of the first century who violently attacked the compromisers until Jesus met him on the Damascus Road. And Jesus was crucified in part because he didn't fit the stereotype of what a Messiah was expected to be amongst the Jews. But we all use stereotypes. But are we willing to admit God's ability to change people's personalities, to change their tendencies, to change their stereotypical behavior? And, and point, Paul is saying these Cretans have a stereotypical character, and it actually fits with these false teachers. You know, they're liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Now, that's actually a quotation Paul uses there in verse 12. It's a quotation from a pagan philosopher, Epimenides. It was restated 300 years later by Callimachus, 
You don't care about their names. I'm just throwing them in. Um, but these Cretans, they were describing their own corrupt culture. And everyone in the Greek world knew that the default settings for Cretans, that was, they were always going to lie. They are liars. And, and ironically, and Paul says, verse 13, this testimony is true. Now, the only time then that Cretans stereotypically tell the truth is when they admit that they're liars. That's what Paul is saying. So Paul is saying that in the case of the false teachers, their stereotypical, stereotypical kind of ungodliness remains. It's untouched by the gospel. Their Cretan behavior is unredeemed. And, and I, I, it's, just, you know, it's just something to think about, even for yourself. Just think about yourself. Are your own national or family stereotypes untouched by the gospel? You know, Scottish miserliness, English greed, Dutch pride, French lust, Ghanaian corruption, Nigerian fraud, Aussie drunkenness, Canadian smugness. Have I offended you all yet? If you want to, just come and I'll, I can offend you afterwards. Maybe your personality and background run counter to your ethnic national stereotype. But it's just as bad in a different way. You're greedy, selfish, arrogant, corrupt, or lustful against type. But the question is, it's not, we, we all see this, but, but the question is, do you believe that the gospel can change you and change your background and change your stereotypical behavior? Well, that's the thing. God can. God does. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here. Why would we be here if he can't do that? And because our bad stereotypes can be true in the church, they can require correction. Sometimes we've got to correct those, those bad stereotypes. In the case of the Cretan false teachers, they needed silencing and sharp correction. Because they couldn't then be teaching in the church and bringing the world into the church. The Cretan corrupt culture, they couldn't bring that in. So they needed to be dealt with. So Paul said, therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. Now the aim of every pastoral rebuke is not to win an argument. It's not to flex with power. It's not to vindicate the pastor's cleverness. The aim is always to promote soundness in the faith. Soundness in the faith. To promote health-giving faith in Jesus Christ. And that gets gets to the original language. It's to promote, we could say, I'll paraphrase it, hygienic orthodoxy. Hygienic orthodoxy. It's soundness in the faith. And, and, you know, it just reminds me of Psalm 19.9. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. There's a cleanliness, a hygienic nature to it. Jesus himself expressed this to Paul. This sharp rebuke. went Back when Paul was known as Saul on the Damascus Road, Jesus confronted Saul and rebuked him sharply and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
It was a sharp rhetorical rebuke. John Calvin likened a sharp kind of a, a, a rebuke to, to a sharp blade cutting through an impossibly tight knot. Calvin said, we must not deal with obstinate and unruly persons in the same manner as with those who are meek and teachable. For instructing the meek, we ought to use such mildness as is suitable to their teachable disposition, while the stubbornness of the unruly must be severely corrected, and as the saying is, for a bad knot there must be a bad wedge. Or, to put it differently myself, stubborn knots need sharp knives. Stubborn knots need sharp knives, and that's the case here. In this case, the hope for a change among these false teachers will be that they receive the sharp rebuke. And if they receive that sharp rebuke, then a couple of things are going to happen, according to verse 14. They'll stop devoting themselves to Jewish myths, and they'll stop obeying the commands of people who turn away from the truth. Their response will be kind of doctrinal and ethical. So there's a change in what, what's believed and in what's lived. And in this case, the Cretans, they're going to stop listening to these Jewish myths. They'll stop listening to Jewish experts who, who reject Jesus' teaching. They'll stop listening to Jewish teachers building their arguments on traditions which are not in inspired Scripture. Did you know that there are books in certain Bibles called the Apocrypha, which are filled with mythical stories that are not inspired, and that the Roman Catholic Church builds doctrine from those uninspired books? I mean, maybe you knew that, but I think a lot of you maybe don't. The Cretans ought to refuse to obey teachers in the churches who had themselves turned away from the truth. They needed to get away from these guys. In other words, believers shouldn't heed the teachings of apostates. They shouldn't cling to the teachings from people who don't obey Jesus anymore if they really did. And if you're on a wrong track, then listening, if you're listening to the wrong teaching and you're heeding people who don't heed Jesus, then you're in grave danger. Often in our stubbornness, you know, you know how it is, you, you'd rather... You'd rather keep driving, even though you're lost, and you'd rather drive over the cliff than admit that you're going in the wrong direction. That's how stubborn we are. And you, just, people, you look at the stubborn person, they're going off the cliff, and you're like, come on, man. But if someone cares enough about our welfare, they care enough to tell us that we're in danger, then maybe we'll listen to that. We, we hear that they care for us, and maybe then we would change course. That's what Paul is hoping for with the false teachers in Crete. He wasn't telling the Cretan church members to make sharp rebuke the only way that they talk to each other, but the point in chapter 1 is that elders, pastors, overseers, these men need to have the skill to silence and sharply rebuke false teachers, teachers who should know better, and it's in order to protect the flock. If you don't do it, then you end up like the United Church in Canada. United Church, you send missionaries to Alberta to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, 
the, the heirs of the Methodist Church, the Methodist Missionaries United Church, they have things like drag queen Bible story time in churches in Canada. I mean, that is, that is because along the way, pastor did not rebuke false teaching sharply. And they just kind of, okay, just be accepting of all views here. And so they got them. They got all the wicked views there with them. So we ignore this kind of pastoral diligence to our, per- to our peril. But how can you then spot the false teacher? Well, it helps, verse 15. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for every good work. Again, do you see? The issue here is not about those on the outside. It's about those inside the church. And this is the hardest part for evangelicals today. We've all bought into the lie that if we express our individual interpretation of our experience, then there is no one anywhere who can say that it is false. We think that if someone says, I had a vision, well then it's got to be true and you can't say that it's false. If someone says, well, the Lord told me I should do this, then there's nobody, it seems, who can argue with that. And yet how many people have said, yeah, you know, the, the Lord's leading me leading me into these things that are, that are actually, the Bible says, are wrong. They'll, just, they'll say, yeah, the Lord told me. See, this puts us, as evangelicals, I'll say, puts us in a very vulnerable position. Because then someone can profess very loudly, confidently, persuasively, that they profess to know God. And too many of us then will refuse to ask any further questions. Oh, they, they're a person of faith. It's good enough. But that's why then it's very tricky. In, in all these different connections that we might make, we, we end up linking arms with people who they profess to know God, but they're, the, they're in the Church of Rome or in the Victory Churches, the Oneness Pentecostal Churches or the Health and Wealth Churches like the Nigerian Franchise Churches. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They deny the true God by their works. Works such as false claims of miracles, heretical interpretations of Scripture, rejection of the historic Christian confessions, sexual immorality, financial fraud, telling lies for gain. And so for all of their talk, and I don't have time to take us to 1 John chapter 2, but for all of their talk, they don't do any godly good. In fact, Paul says they are unfit for any good work. They're unfit He goes so far as to say these people who profess to know God are detestable and disobedient. And that's why they're unfit for any good work. Their lives are gross. They can't do good in God's name because they're professing a different God. And again, this is not talking about regular folks, little hypocrisies. 
my little hypocrisies, your little hypocrisies maybe. This is talking about the hypocrisies of false teachers. Those who know better. Those who know what they're doing. I've got to bring this to a close. I think we need to be very concerned with the threat of false teaching in the church. In this church, this church, I'm very worried about it. And you think, oh, but we're a Bible church. We're a Bible church. We have all this preaching, centrality of preaching. What is happening in your hearts? And I know what's going on in this church. What is happening amongst you? The threat is there for me is that when you go years and years of seeking to follow the Lord and seeking to do things according to the Bible, you get bored. And you start thinking, there's other people who do things differently. They seem to be happy. They seem to have cool stuff. They seem to have cool experiences. And you get a little bit dissatisfied. Familiarity breeds contempt. And so then you start then dabbling in the other things. For some, it's going to be then in the political implications. For others, it's going to be into more experientialism. For others, it's going to be, yeah, I don't have to be concerned about holiness. I'm a glorious ruin. I can just kind of, I can, I can kind of relax. For others, it's going to be an intellectual pursuit that says, hmm, actually, yeah, there's errors in the Bible. It's still useful, but I want to have a more sophisticated understanding of Christianity than what I've been taught. And, it's, and, and it all comes back to the same stuff. It's because people are bored. And they're looking for something else. And they're not content with God as God has revealed Himself. And they want it a different way. And it's certainly the problems of people as they go on with the Lord. What's the phenomenon right now? All these people that were so excited for Jesus in the early 2000s, now they're saying, yeah, I'm not an evangelical anymore. I'm not a Christian anymore. (laughs) Really? Well, I guess then you weren't really into this same Jesus then. That's what it reveals. And that's why each one of you here must watch yourself. Because you might have notions about Jesus, but it might not be the Jesus of the Bible. And if your heart is getting cold, and you're starting to look into one of those directions, everybody's got their own angle to pursue. If you're pursuing one of those angles, you've got to guard your heart because the temptation is that you will lose your first love and go after idols. And, and, and then what happens then when your heart goes that way? You know what Satan does? He brings along a false teacher. And right then it's like, wow, this guy's fascinating. He's talking about all this, other st- all this stuff that my old church didn't talk about. So interesting. And you're stimulated and fascinated and intrigued. And you forget about any kind of consistency. And it's all about how it makes you feel. And that is a great threat, friends. I urge you, I urge you to get back to the foundations, to the first things. Don't take my word for it. 
take the Word's word for it. And then you will be secure and you'll have discernment because then to the pure, all things are pure. You will savor and be grateful for the pure milk of the Word. And that, friends, is what we need in these dark times. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would challenge each one of us to the ways that we have been dissatisfied with your ways and the ways that we have made ourselves gullible and vulnerable to the deceptions of false teachers. Lord, give us wisdom, discernment, encouragement, and hope as we trust that your rod and staff can comfort us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I ask you to stand as we respond in worship, looking forward to the coming of the kingdom. Everybody's ready to eat. You'll be able to go downstairs if you're a gospel partner for the potluck right away. Uh, the elders will be down there. I'm going to be at the back door. If, if you're not a gospel partner, you don't have to be chased away. But if you want to talk to me, even about issues of your own soul, please come talk to me. I'll see you at the door and you're free to hang out. But just listen to these words from James chapter 4. And I hope this is what you'll do today. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Draw near to God, friends. That's what we need to do. Go in peace. You're dismissed.